Well, now we have our main Bible reading, which is Revelation 10 and 11. If you're using the Church Bibles, that's on page 1033. And it says this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand, right, raised his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel, who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me this little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who are worshipping there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague, as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, and conquer them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because those two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. 
Then they'd heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Well, we're going to have a look at that passage in a moment. Before we do, let me remind you there'll be a question time straight after the service, straight after the sermon. You also have your order of service or sermon outline, which you can use if you would like. And finally, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable vision that John has seen. As, as we continue to unfold the meaning of it, might you help us through your spirit to understand what's happening. Well, we thank you, Lord, that this isn't beyond our understanding. But rather, you have given this vision for our, us to understand the end times, to anticipate them, and to be confident in them, knowing that this is your plan put uh, to fruition through your Son and through your church. Amen. Well, what do we really know about angels? If you translate the Hebrew word for angel into English, you'd end up with the word messenger. The Greek word for angel is also translated messenger. And so when Jesus talks about John the Baptist and quotes Malachi to refer to him in Matthew 11 verse 10, he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face which would literally be translated, I send my angel before your face. And the English word is a, simply a transliteration of the Greek word angelos. So an angel, primarily, is a messenger. They can be human messengers. So you couldn't push, call the postman, an angel. But of course, what we have in mind here are heavenly beings that serve God. But how do they serve God? Well, they are his messengers. Now we can add to this a peculiar aspect we find in the Old Testament. We saw it recently when we looked at Genesis 18. There Abraham sees three men. 
But the narrator introduces the episode as the Lord appearing to Abraham. At one point, they are asking questions. That is, the three men. But then without any warning, the Lord asks Abraham a question. Then two set out, and the Lord stays with Abraham. When the two arrive at Sodom, they are called two angels. And of course they come with a message. But there's a confusion here. Are these simply heavenly beings that bring God's message? Or are they speaking with the authority of Yahweh because they speak his message? Or is one so representative of Yahweh that he can be referred to as the Lord? Or are there two messengers and the third is Yahweh? Then we could add to this the mention of the angel of the Lord. So in the burning bush, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire. But then it's the Lord that speaks to Moses. And then there are other times when angels aren't mentioned at all. Rather, the Lord is spoken about directly. So when the people travel through the wilderness, it's the Lord that went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. Now the reason for all this talk about angels is because Revelation 10 begins with an appearance of an angel. But there's something extraordinary about this angel. He's wrapped in a cloud. He has a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. And his legs are like pillars of fire. He holds a scroll. It's open. His right foot is on the sea and his left foot on the land. And his voice is like a lion roaring. We can stack the evidence up to provide a possible identity to this angel. First, he's wrapped in a cloud. Well, if we were to go back to Revelation 1 verse 7, we read how he is coming with the clouds. Who's the one who rides on a cloud? It goes on, the one who's pierced. So that's Jesus. In Ezekiel 1 verse 28, in the great appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, a rainbow is mentioned. A rainbow represents the glory of the Lord. Back in Noah's time, it represented covenant faithfulness. The face like the sun. That causes us to think back to Revelation 1 verse 16 where Christ is described in exactly the same way. That his legs are like pillars of fire, reminders of the Exodus we've literally just mentioned, where God leads his people through the wilderness. And the fact that his voice sounds like a lion roaring could bring to mind that Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So what we have here is the angel of the Lord with very clear divine attributes. 
who is about to send his prophet John out to witness, just as the angel of the Lord had done so in the Old Testament. But of course, John is in a very different phase of redemptive history. Here, it is Christ that's sending his prophet out. But naturally, the imagery of the angel of the Lord is now used to describe Christ. So this means we can begin to put a picture together. The Father begins with a scroll. Remember the one who sat on the throne. The Son has inherited the authority to be able to open the scroll and put into action the will of the Father. The authority in this picture is... Um, is given by the fact that he, his right foot is on the sea and his left foot is on the land. He has authority over the whole earth. And the scroll's been opened and its content has included judgment and redemption. And God's plan is coming to fruition. And in verse 7 we read of how the seventh trumpet call is to be sounded and the mystery of God will be fulfilled. The mystery of God being all tied up with Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. All of which Daniel didn't know about when he received his vision of the end times. But now as John is given this vision, we see that Jesus has been vindicated and given all authority. He has set God's plan in motion and now it's made clear that the souls of those who prayed earlier, how long, O Lord, that prayer will be answered, and they too will be vindicated with Christ. John is told to eat the scroll in the hand of the angel, which tastes sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the stomach. John, like all Christians, has two responses to the judgment of God found in the scroll. There's a sense in which God's judgment upon the unrepentant is sweet to the believer. It's his holy will which will bring glory to him. God's righteousness, holiness, justice are demonstrated when he punishes sin. Punishment of the church's persecutors vindicates Christians. But it also leaves a bitterness, as John contemplates that the unrepentant would respond to God's word by rejecting it. Revelation 11 begins with John being given a measuring rod to measure the temple of God. The temple of God has always been about God's presence and him dwelling with his people. In this context, this provides us with the image of God being present with his people here on earth as they endure suffering. There to witness on the Lord's behalf and they will be persecuted for it. But God is with them. Which brings us to the two witnesses. 
In verse 3, the two witnesses are introduced. And then in verse 4, the two witnesses are called two lampstands. Now we've seen the lampstands earlier in Revelation. But there, there were seven. And the seven lampstands represented seven churches. So the two witnesses could refer to the witness of the church. But then quite naturally the question is raised, why not seven witnesses for the seven churches? But here's where Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 is helpful. Let me read it for you. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall be not put to death on the evidence of one witness. Here we see quite simply the witness of one person is not valid, but two is. And so the church's witness is naturally presented as two people. Once the church completes its witness, a beast rises from the bottomless pit. It will defeat the two witnesses and leave them in shame, their dead bodies laying in the street. And so it will appear that the beast has got the better of God's people. It doesn't mean that the whole church will be dead or destroyed, but rather this idea that the church will seem small and insignificant. We read earlier in Ezekiel 37 where there's a picture of Israel in exile. The people have become a valley of dry bones. But God breathes life into them and their exile comes to an end. So too God will vindicate his two witnesses. God will breathe his breath into his church. And when he does, all those that observe it will be in great fear. God will take his church in a cloud to heaven. And God's people will be vindicated in the witness they gave to the God they serve. The last three trumpets are also referred to as three woes. And when we come to verse 14 of chapter 11, we read the second woe has come to an end. Only the third woe is left. Out of these three woes, the third is the shortest. But that's not to say it is not the most severe. The first two woes have brought prolonged suffering. But the final woe will be over abruptly. And the reason for the brevity is because the final woe is the final judgment. Have a look at verse 18 of chapter 11. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants. Once again, we're reminded of the prayer of the souls of those who've been martyred. O Sovereign Lord, 
holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? The suffering experienced by the church has been a result of the faithful witness of the gospel. The suffering has been at the hands of those who reject the gospel and rage against the God who's created the world and brought redemption to all who would believe. And this they take out upon those who represent him. But God will bring this suffering to an end. But in order to do that, he must remove those that are hostile and remove those who persecute. Then and only then will God shelter them with his presence. The third woe is the final judgment when the saints prayer is answered. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises that you make here in this passage. And as we reflect on how the nations rage against you and your representatives, we thank you that they are no match for you, but rather they can act as your foil. We thank you, Lord, that we've seen you vindicate your son in the past, and now we anticipate, anticipate and look forward to the day when you will vindicate your people as well. We pray, Lord, that we would have the confidence that this deserves because you are the creator, you are our redeemer, and you will bring us your salvation. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start there'd be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments in light of what we've been thinking about. That time has now arrived, so any thoughts, questions, comments? Yes, Mackie. Okay, so just repeat the recording. Can we just run through the identity of the two witnesses again? Yes, so 11 verse 3 it says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And then in verse 4 it says, These are two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, the, I think the logic is the only other place where we've seen lampstands referred to is back in Revelation 1, where the lampstands represent the churches. So immediately that raises questions. There were seven lampstands there. Why have we suddenly gone to two lampstands? If we are going to identify them as the church, then what's gone wrong? Some people say, well, if you read carefully through the list of the letters of the churches, what you find is five of the churches were um, criticised. Only two of the churches were celebrated wholly, and therefore they are, are the two witnesses who are being represented here. But other people would say, actually, what we've got here... Well, actually, what, what other people would say, this is actually Moses and Ezekiel. Um, with them being two witnesses, Moses representing the 
law and Ezekiel representing the prophets. And of course they are the two that testify to Jesus at the um, the transfiguration. Thank you. <laughs> at the transfiguration is Moses and Ezekiel appear there. Um, but we don't need to discount Moses and Ezekiel. They we can still say that these two witnesses have the characteristics of Moses and Ezekiel as they, but ultimately it's the church now doing the work that Moses and Ezekiel have done in the past because that's the phase of redemptive history we're in. So still raises the question, why two? Which takes us to Deuteronomy 17 verse 6. So once again, numbers are used figuratively. So two, if you send one witness, well, that's not a valid testimony. Two witnesses or more, that's valid. So therefore, two lampstands represent the full witness of the seven churches. That's the rationale that was followed in Beale. Adrian. Yeah, what did I say? What did I say? Oh yeah, Moses and Elijah. Yes. Sorry that. <laughs> Do you know I was saying Ezekiel and thinking Elijah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So cut all that. Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses, or well, not the two witnesses, but they could represent two witnesses, and they were at the transfiguration. Excellent. Any other questions or comments or thoughts? Oh, it's all kicking off. Yes. Good question. Um, so the two olive trees. From what I read in the commentary, as I understand it, the lampstands need oil to burn, and the that would be come from the olive trees. So. Two olive trees, two lampstands make up the two witnesses, so they've got the oil to burn as well. I didn't read it in that much detail, I just skipped over that bit. So, yeah. If you're happy with that for the time being. Yep, cool. Simon? Go on, just repeat that one more time. Oh, as well as the Son of God. Yeah, good, good question. So let me just repeat the question for the tape, the tape, the recording. Um, we've said. We've hinted at the idea that the mighty angel is Christ. How can he be a mighty angel when we know him to be the Son of God? Yeah, that's a good question because we don't want any confusion here. So a couple of things we want to um, make so that we can keep some clear distinctions. Christ is the uncreated creator. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is as eternal as the Father. Um, and, and all that. So having established that, 
we do want to make a distinction that if we do refer to Christ as an angel, we're going to be in danger of saying that he is created because angels are created. Although they're heavenly beings, they're part of God's creation. So, if we're going to talk in terms of Christ being an angel, we're going to have to do so very carefully without collapsing him into part of the creation and keeping his eternality. Which is why the long-winded introduction. Um, what I was trying to do there was just to establish this idea that when we read through the Old Testament, we get this peculiarity where angels are referred to, but then the angels are spoken of as if they are the Lord and they have the Lord's authority. Even so much so that when they speak, it's no longer them speaking, but it's the Lord speaking. And there's no real clarity. Or, well, I think there's a purposeful ambiguity in the... Sometimes it's the angel speaks, sometimes it's the angel of the Lord speaks, some, but then quite smoothly, without any um, worry, it's, it's the Lord says. So, and I guess one of the things to bear in mind as well is in Hebrews, we've got Hebrews 1 verse 1, God spoke through his angels in the past, but now he speaks through his son. So the assumption is that all of the Old Testament message is given through angels, but they speak with the authority of God. So that the angel of the Lord is as if it were God, or you might think. So I think what's happening then when we get to Revelation 10, you get imagery from the Old Testament that causes us to remember those times when the angel of the Lord spoke, when his angels came, and when they spoke his message with his authority, um, and those times when he spoke, you know, when you get that, and the Lord spoke, and you get that ambiguity. But of course, things have moved on in the redemptive history now, because now... Um, the one who's speaking on God's behalf is no angel. He is the second person of the Son. He's God's Christ. He's the anointed one. And particularly those imageries of he's coming in the cloud, his face was like the sun, and his voice is like a lion roaring, all suggest something more than just a, an angel, something more like Christ, because they're his, um, that's what he looks like, that's, they're his imagery. But what I think is quite clever is, it also adopts that angel of the Lord feel about it. So, I guess to put it crudely, what we have here is, John is being sent out to witness to his people. Who is sending him out? Well, it's the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament. Who's the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament? Well, it's, it's Yahweh. But because we're in the New, uh, new Testament, in the new phase of redemptive history, he is he's Christ. 
So I think this is quite interesting because one of the things that people do when they read the, so say for example, the three men, they might say, what is Christ? Jesus. Jesus is one of the three men. And we would want to say, well, it's not though, is it? Because that's in danger of undermining the incarnation. Because Jesus, the incarnation was an event in itself. That's something that happened at a point in history. Jesus wasn't called Jesus until the incarnation happened. He didn't appear as a person until the incarnation happened. Otherwise, the incarnation loses its significance. No longer is it the point where God becomes flesh. But what we can do is when we get to Revelation 10, we can see that Christ is now described as the angel of the Lord was described back then. Not that we're going to go back and read Christ into the angel of the Lord, but now the one who's speaking and sending out his prophets is the Christ. If you see what, if that makes sense. There's a, there's a slight distinction to be made there. Um, it's quite different. Happy? Time for one more? There doesn't have to be. Yes, Ricky. Uh, I think that is an interesting question. So just to repeat it for the recording, we've had an interlude uh, that's found in chapter 7 between the 6th and the 7th seal. Today we've looked at the interlude between the 6th and 7th trumpet. Um, while they are complementary, are there also parallels? Yeah, I think so, um, and I think that would be an interesting study. I think we could have some fun exploring that in a little bit more detail. Um, I mean, interestingly, I thought as we were reading through today's passage, I mean, if you go back to chapter 7, the church or the people of God are sealed, and then by the time you get to the end of it, um, they are in the shelter of God and their tears are being wiped from their eyes. Then when we, when we get to our chapter today, well I thought there was there's quite an interesting element to it because I think, so from 11.4 to 13, I, get, I think you get something of a parallel to Christ's own experience. So when Christ comes, he testifies to his Father. When the two witnesses come, they testify to Christ and the Father. Um, 
interestingly, Christ is given, you know, Christ has these miraculous powers. That means he could bring sulfur down and destroy his enemies. And so the church has, as his representatives, have these powers. If anyone would harm them, um, they have this ability to pour fire and consume them and their foes. And so what comes next is quite unexpected because then they get destroyed by the beast. But that's also what happens to Christ. Christ is destroyed. Um, and then there's this celebration, as it were, as the nations have destroyed Christ, the nations have destroyed two witnesses, and they're shamed either by Christ being hung on the tree or the church by their dead bodies being left out in in the street. But then in both cases, Christ, um, God raises them up and then they return to him. So it feels like there's a parallel. Sorry, that's my. What's this? I'll need to sort it out. So it feels like there's a parallel there, um, which I think relates to the earlier parallel as well. Um, and then, of course, but when you get to the seventh trumpet, the emphasis, well, is is also on the nations that rage against them and the wrath that's come to defeat them. But also there's that imagery of God's temple being opened and the Ark of the Covenant being there. So I think there are some similarities, but that's a little bit um, off the cut, uh, um, yeah, ad hoc. So it'd be an interesting question to explore more. Let's stop there. Um, and we're going to sing our next song. And then we are going to have a brief reflection on that last verse of chapter 11. We're going to stand to sing, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. <laughs>